Welcome to the Connect Community Podcast, recorded live in Stamford, Connecticut. We're so glad to have you with us today. If you're ever in our area, come see us in person. We hope today's message inspires you and helps you live better. We're going to conclude this series today titled, It Takes a Village. We've been on a good journey. And uh, today, uh, the message title, if you're taking notes, if you're on our app, it's titled, Share Your Burdens. Share Your Burdens. Now, there's something about the human condition that that Solomon, King Solomon, noted and and he observed about 3,000 years ago. It's this idea that the person who is isolated, the person who doesn't invest in genuine relationships, the person that doesn't belong to other people, that person tends to gravitate toward materialism. That person tends to gravitate toward possessions, and they kind of become obsessed with it, going after things. And his conclusion is that such a person is never satisfied. There's never a point where their soul feels like, okay, I'm satisfied. And I think this is an accurate depiction of the kind of world we live in today. I think it's a good snapshot of our culture today. I believe we are at a fundamental crossroads when it comes to relating to one another. We're at a fundamental crossroads in how we're going to relate uh, to one another in generations to come. And I think that we are the generation who's going to decide, going to decide which way we're going to bend. I want you to think about this. Like the generation of our fathers, our mothers, our grandparents, the way that they, they connected to people was through the local community. There was a local church, local schools. There were familiar uh, grounds. There was the family dinner table, block parties, right? Neighborhoods used to have block parties, neighborhood clubs, and people knew their neighbors. The local community was their village. Some of you grew up going to block parties, in in town and the content available was also different even though they grew up with television the content that they had access to was a little bit different than what we have today a lot different than what we have today you know not too long ago we introduced our girls to a show called family matters we love family Matters. in fact we started watching it again and uh, if you don't know the show by the title, you know the show by the, the, the kid who stole the show, literally, uh, and the phrase, did I do that? Remember that? Steve Urkel. Now, before Steve Urkel stole the show, uh, Family Matters was actually the premise of the show was supposed to be about a functional family in, in the city of Chicago and their life's challenges. And the show was supposed to be centered on this man, the dad, Carl Winslow, a Chicago PD officer, and and the way that he led his family. Now, Family Matters was a show that that was made in an era where people valued, we value TV dads. I don't know if you remember some, some iconic TV dads, right? There's obviously Uncle Phil was an iconic TV dad. Uh, if you remember, if you go a little bit further back, I don't remember the name of the character, but Alan Thicke played something in the Brady Bunch. I forget the name. Anybody, anybody remember that? No? All right. We're, we're, uh, maybe if you ask your grandparents, they might remember. <laughs> There's also Danny Tanner, right? Uncle Jesse. Remember that? 
Yeah, Uncle Joey, exactly, full house. Cliff Huxtable, that was a good one. Uh, and, and Family Ties also had that, that, that family dad presence. Almost every episode in these shows, specifically in Family uh, Matters, um, it ended, it culminated with some kind of moral lesson. You know, the piano would come along and, uh, and, uh, and uh, 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 Carl Winslow would look at his wife and say, Harriet, you know, you are my only one. And then the little song would go, and some kind of moral lesson would come about either forgiveness or, or some kind of principle of uh, understanding or friendship uh, or honesty. In fact, we were watching the very first episode of that show, and it ended with them singing a, a worship song around the piano. And, and that's something that you don't see anymore. Just 20 years apart from us, 30 years maybe apart from us, you don't see anymore. And that was as much influence from the outside world our families had in the home. That's as much influence from technology and entertainment we would have. Every other point of conversation, every other point of influence came from home, came from schools, or from the local community, people that they knew. And oh, how things have changed, right? How things have changed. Because today, your village can mean something entirely different. Today, your village is powered by algorithms. Your village is powered by sophisticated technology. And we have been given this portal that we all carry in our pockets that can literally connect us to the entire world. You can pull out this device and you can order an item that is across the world right now and it will be in your doorstep within a week. It's quite amazing. We're all used to it. We're not impressed by it anymore. But if you think about the logistical uh, organization and the technology that it takes, you can, if you have broadband connection, you can have a face-to-face -face conversation with just about anybody in the world. This is amazing, which means that our connections have broadened. But not only that, we have created these portals. We have created these avenues in social media and, and, and the like. And, and it, it's shifting how we relate to others. Because more and more, our egos are catered to. More and more, what we want is catered to, especially on social media. More and more, we are told that we should re relate only to the things that interest us. As if interest and need were the same thing. As if craving and nourishment demand the same thing. No, I've never talked to anybody who craved carrots. I've never talked to anybody who said, mm, I'm craving some broccoli today. You don't crave that stuff, right? You crave, what, what do you crave? Some of the things, you crave a good burger, right? A good, a good New Haven pizza, huh? Better than New York pizza, right? You crave a little, I'm ready to start a fight here. <laughs> you crave what? You crave a, a, good, a good scone or, or a piece of cake or, or a good piece of pie a la mode. You have to have apple pie a la mode with your ice cream on the side. I'm not trying to get you hungry. I'm just saying, like, if you're going to crave, you're going to crave something delicious. But if you're looking for nourishment, you don't listen to what you're craving. 
You go for what your body needs. You're going to count your macros. You're going to look at the protein content, the carbohydrate content. You're going to look at the fat content. You're going to make sure that your body gets what it needs, not what it wants. The same is true about our soul. But the difference is that we're being constantly fed through ads, content, posts, videos, things that are meant to agree with us. Things that we're picking and, and we're given the option to connect and to disconnect from people based on one paragraph. Based on 30 second, second video, a 30 second video that they post. And we're being trained to say yes and no to a relationship based on a photo. We're getting accustomed and we're training our children, the generation that's coming after us. To reject and deny a person based on one thing they say that doesn't agree with us. Something that doesn't please us. We have labeled people influencers based entirely on their ability to amass an audience. And that has no bearing on the content of their character whatsoever. And this novel way of connecting virtually... It does two things. First, it reinforces the idea that relationships are for consumption. That what these humans produce on the other side of the screen is to feed our cravings, is to feed our ego. And the second thing that it does is that the connection has to agree with us. It has to support us. It has to support you. So your feed eventually becomes an, e an echo chamber. Only things that agree with you. And those things bleed into real life. And if you're in high school here today or if you're in college, you probably realize that this is true. Isn't this true? Don't you think that more and more people are about themselves and about what they can get from you? Don't you feel like more and more people demand blind support? They demand blind applause. Now on top of that, another kind of alarming thing that, that has shifted us is that we have created an environment where there's a tremendous pressure. There's tremendous pressure to present our lives with filters and excitement. To present our lives in a certain way, because unless you present yourself in a particular way, you will not be popular. And popularity is the, is the pathology of this type of connection, of any virtual interaction. It's all about getting the views. It's all about getting the likes. And everything is a presentation. Everything needs a filter. Any, everything needs to look perfect. And everything lasts forever. That's why I believe this is a moment in history where we're at, we're at a crossroads. We're getting to define what is a village. And the question is, are we going to codify this terrible idea that relationships are objects for consumption into our lives? Are we going to embrace that idea? Are we going to embrace the algorithm idea and transfer that into real relationships? The idea that people around us are supposed to applaud everything we do. 
That real friends support what you do no matter what. I remember the first time I heard that. It must have been almost 20 years ago in a TV show. A series. I'm not going to say the name of it. But when I heard it, something just churned on the inside. Because one friend said to the other, why aren't you supporting me? Real friends are supposed to support you no matter what you do. And I, in my heart, I was like, that's wrong. Really? No matter what you do? Even if you're dishonest, your friend is not going to call you out. Even if you're unjust, when you lie, when you're manipulative, your friends are supposed to go along with it. When you're self-seeking, friendship goes along with that. Now, I'm not advocating that we get rid of virtual world and that we get rid of social media. I think it's here to stay. Even though I personally don't believe social media produces a net positive. And whenever I go off of it, whenever I take a break on social media, I feel better. I feel like <sighs> a breath of fresh air. I don't know if you ever felt that when you stay away from, from, from those portals. But the truth is that, you know, we all, we're all on it. And, and, and some of you, that's your job. Some of you, it's part of what you do. And, and I think virtual reality, social media, artificial intelligence, it's all here to stay. But it begs the question... Because that's what the question becomes. What is a village? What is your village? What defines a village for you? I think that we need to have clarity on that. So that we understand what is real and what is not real. And I believe that that's our generation's charge. We're going to decide. We're the ones that are going to decide if this thing that we created is going to take over or not. We will decide whether our village will be this strange, self-involved, marketing-driven, virtual exchange that we are all part of, a part of. We'll decide whether TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat or X or YouTube and the likes will be the channels, will be the source of our human connection. Whether those are the portals that will help us raise our children. Whether those are the portals that, that the platforms that will replace the public square and the family dinner table, or whether our village will be defined by a clear distinction that we make between what is consumption and what is true connection, between what is entertainment and what is true influence, between the persona we play online and who we really are, whether we will prize the dinner table, bedside prayers, the local community, whether we will prize and and, 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 and value the help we get from our friends and family in raising our children. Whether we will value a friend, not because of what they offer for our consumption, but whether we will value a friend because of the content of their character, because of who they are, because of the mutual connection that we experience. See, this is part of the human condition. And although we have these portals now that are new, that are kind of challenging the way we relate to one another, this idea of connecting to one another, is, it's, it's been something that we've been grappling for years, thousands of years. And here is uh, King Solomon's observation that we mentioned in the beginning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 say this again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? 
This is also, this also is vanity and, and a happy business. Then he continues. Listen to this. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two will lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? That's a good line. If you're trying to meet somebody, you know. It's terrible. Horrible joke. And though a man might prevail against one uh, who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now this is one of those passages that challenges. This is one of those passages that I think speaks to the core of who we are, isn't it? Because we all deal with this tension. How easy it is to find arguments in a world today that promote foregoing friendships, promote foregoing marriage, promotes foregoing family for the sake of career advancement. How easy it is to find today arguments. You know, what some people call women's empowerment today looks a lot like women just making every effort to exist without men. Right? Like just, we don't need men. What some call feminism sounds a lot like just a stand against motherhood. Which is kind of odd because we all had mothers. What people call being the man is really men being encouraged to objectify women. Being bombarded with, with music and images and women and, as objects of consumption. And it's the, it's the pattern of our world today. You know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm part of a local gym here in town and... I love the staff there. I love the people there. I love the place. It's actually not too far from here. Uh, we, we, we get to work out. And when Alini and I turned 40, we decided that this would be our best decade in terms of fitness. You know, so we're, we're, doing, we're doing what we can to get to that, that, that flow. And she's a little bit ahead of me, but, you know, we're getting there. <laughs> we're, we're making every effort to make sure that, that we, we, we end our 40s in, in, in good shape. But there are times when I walk in the gym... And the playlist that's playing is not my favorite. It's not something that I would choose. It's not the, the, the type of music. The beat is fine and, and the content is fine. But uh, it's just not what I would pick because the content is, the, the content is not fine. Sorry. The content is, is the problem. And I usually get in my zone and I tune it out and I count my reps and, and, and I, play, I pray under my breath and, and, and it's, it's fine. I just, you know, tune it out. But this week, just this past week, the beginning of the week, there was a song that came on that I had never heard before. Have you ever listened to a song that's like you, you, you can't change it because you're in an environment where you didn't pick it and you were like, I wish I had never heard this. I don't want to know this. I don't want to know that this song exists. I really don't. And so the song was so repulsive. And I think I was doing either push-ups or pull-ups. And, and, and it was just like, oh, no. I just like disgusted at the song. It was terrible. It was terrible. And I thought to myself, something began to rise on the inside. Because I thought to myself, if any boy or man, I have three daughters, y'all. If any boy or man were to address one of my daughters the way that these guys are addressing women in their song, I would lose my salvation. 
It would be the day that you would see a headline of your pastor, you know, being aggressive with somebody. I've never punched anybody in the face, but hey, there's always a first. All right. There's always a first. I don't know if you ever thought about the difference between um, um, a man's love for his wife and, and versus a man's love for his, for his children, for his daughter particularly. You know, when you fall in love with the woman of, of your dreams, you, you are willing to do anything. You, you, you are willing to die for her. You know, so when I met Alini and, and I fell in love with Alini, I think I remember even praying and saying, God, I will die for her. I will die for her. I will catch a grenade for her. I'll jump off a plane for her. I will, I will do that. You know, I'll do it. Because it says in the Bible, right, that men should love their wives as Christ loved the church because he gave his life for her. That's probably why I prayed. I was like, God, I will do it. I will do it. Help me. Help me, Lord. And a miracle happened. She got temporary blindness. And... Uh, <laughs> And uh, it worked out. That's the love a man has for, his, for the woman of his life. Like, he's willing to die for her. But I remember when Maya was born, my firstborn, a little girl. I caught her, and I, and I picked her up for the first time. And, and, and something just rose on the inside. I was like, I will hurt somebody for you. I'll not only die for you. Like, I'll hurt somebody for you too, babe. But, you know, I will hurt, I will hurt somebody for my children. And so when that song came on, all those feelings came up as well. I was like, I don't want to listen to this song. This is a terrible, terrible song because the message of the world is about consumption. Our daughters are, are, are being presented as, as consumption items. You are to see the opposite sex, not as counterparts, not as equals, as objects of consumption. Not as your half, as the scripture says. Not as becoming one. But objects of self-interest, self-gain, status. What can they offer me? What can I get from them? What is this relationship going to do to me? How will they make me look? And the end of it is that annihilation becomes the norm. Because you don't give yourself over to anyone. Let it be a friend or, or a potential spouse. Anyone. And then this sense of loneliness drives you to materialism. You just want things. You want money. Cash. It's an unquenchable pursuit. The pursuit of things. And this rebuke from the scripture is clear. It says two are better than one. Two are better than one. In other words, you're not as good as you could be if you were together with the right person. And this is not just about romantic relationships or marriage. This is about being part of a community. It is better to be connected. It's better to belong. It's better to have someone to share life with, to join efforts, to join forces, a friend, a neighbor, and sure, a spouse. Because the reward is greater. Sure, yeah, the reward can be greater. But not only that, it's because you can endure more. You can go through life together, sharing, giving. Friends, life is difficult. There is suffering in life. 
And some of you, you were attracted to this place because you were going through things. You were attracted to the life of God because you were going through difficulties. There was something missing in your life. So I want to seal this series with an important aspect of what makes a village a village. We're all bombarded and surrounded and flooded with all these other ideas of what a village is. But I think we should define a village from the scripture. And this should define our idea of what a village is. Do you know when you're part of a village? You know, it's not only when you can bring your strengths. That's great. It's not only when you can bring your greatness and capacity. That's awesome. It's not only when you can bring your contribution to the village. That's great. But a collection of people becomes your village when you can bring to them your burden as well. A village is a place where you can bring your burdens. And I'm talking about your burdens. I'm talking about your insecurities, your vulnerabilities. See, we live in a world where children are gaining more knowledge about filters and good lighting, poses and angles, than they're learning about vulnerability. They're learning more about getting the right selfie than they're learning about trust and mutual belonging. Presentation is gaining more ground than confession, than character. And you can nod your head like this and agree with me and whip your head back and forth and agree with me. Have you noticed that Will Smith and his daughter Willow both recorded a song based on the same premise? This. It's nod your head like this and whip your hair back and forth. So you can do both. You, know, you can nod your head and you can agree, but I would bet, I would bet, if betting was legal, I would bet a dollar. <laughs> Not a lot, because, you know. That most of you here, you're willing to carry someone else's burdens. You are. You're generous with your strength. You are willing to carry somebody else's burdens. You're willing to help. You're willing to, to do it gladly. You offer yourself and you offer your strengths. But you have no intention of allowing anyone to carry yours. To you, your burden is yours. It's your responsibility. Especially if you're a man. It's just, it's just it's ingrained in you. I need to carry this. Which means this, we tend to be generous with our strengths, but we're stingy with our vulnerabilities. We don't allow people into that part of our lives. And it makes sense because compassion is easier than trust. Compassion is easier to practice than trust. Helping someone else is about empathy. It's about compassion. It's about love. It's about love. But allowing someone to carry your burdens requires trust. It requires you allowing them to have it freely. And trust is not given freely. It needs to be earned. Now here's a passage to challenge all of us. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 through 3 says this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, 
lest, lest you too become tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I've always read this passage from the position of the strong and spiritual person. For as far as I can remember, you know, this passage has been in my life as, as that place of, of uh, uh, being the person who, who has to help the other. Now, the reason I'm saying that I always read this passage from the position of the strong and spiritual person is not a point of bragging. It's not a point of, of pride even. It's because since I was about 13 years old, maybe 14 years old, this passage has always been a rebuke in my life. A rebuke against self-righteousness. A rebuke against feeling like maybe I'm in a better position than somebody else and maybe they should know better. You know how sometimes you can feel that way? Like, they should know better. It has framed my thinking from my youth. J.D., don't judge people. Don't judge people for their transgressions, but help them be restored. And it's been, it's been a fundamental part of my life, and I'm glad about that. So the scripture is very close to my heart. When I talk to anybody going through situations, when I talk to a, a drug addict, a thief, when I talk to somebody who has been unfaithful to their spouse, or someone who has been dealing with real difficult problems, somebody who's trying to change, this is the passage that comes to heart. And what comes to my mind is not like, I can't believe you did that. It's usually like, I'm, I'm, what I'm thinking is not like, how could you have done that? It's like, if, if it weren't for the grace of God, I would be in this person's position, if not worse. It's only by the grace of God that we make the choices that we make. So JD, in a spirit of gentleness, help this person. Help restore and if you know anything about Alini and me as pastors, you know that this is something that we strive to live out. From the depths of my heart, we genuinely do not judge people by their worst parts. You know, we have, we've had people who have shared their story with us. And I'll say that 99% of the time, not to say 100, right? But 99% of the time, all the junk that people have confessed, all the junk that people have brought to us, all the junk that we have counseled them through, we never think about it. It doesn't come to mind. We release that from our hearts to the Lord. And why? Because this passage has shaped our hearts. Carry one another's burdens. And so you'll fulfill the law of Christ. If anybody thinks he's something, he is nothing. So who am I? Who are we? And it should shape each follower of Christ. We shouldn't gossip about people's problems and people's misfortunes. If you have people in your life who do that, you got to cut that out. You got to stop him. You got to change the subject. Do it in grace. Do it in love. But don't be part of that. Don't allow that, that to be uh, your norm. We shouldn't cast people out because they've gone off course. If they're regretful and repentant, we should restore them in love back to wholeness. And in this way, Scripture says, we fulfill the law of Christ. But this week, this week, as I was preparing this message, I, I, I saw this passage with fresh eyes. And David, if you're in the room, this is your cue. I saw this passage with fresh eyes for the first time in my life. I felt the Spirit of God 
and my spirit say, J.D., what about your burdens? You know, you usually read this passage thinking as, as somebody who is meant to be spiritually mature and help others, but what about your burdens? What about your life? And I begin to remember and think about all the times I had people in my corner. All the times I had people walk me through things where they were the ones helping me, sharing and, and carrying my burden. I remember our first Thanksgiving after our twin daughters were born, Chloe and Peyton. You know, it was a very difficult pregnancy. Alini had to go to the hospital daily for checkups. Some of you know the story. It was a mono-mono pregnancy, high risk. It, her life was in risk. The kids' lives were in risk. The umbilical cords were all tied together, and we had to monitor them daily, and that took a lot of resources. You know, we were living off of our savings. We were raising money to start the church. The church hadn't started yet. We didn't have a salary. We had just moved here. No family, no support, no friends in the local community, running a couple of connect groups, looking to start the church in January. It's October. They are born. My wife has a C-section. They stay in the NICU for 28 days. We can't touch them for two weeks. And it's a hard, hard season. We're going to the hospital and having to leave them there at night because we have a three-year-old to care for. One hour away, we're driving up to Danbury every day to see them and leaving them there. And then we finally get to bring them home. It's, it's November 11th when we brought them home. And Thanksgiving is around the corner. And we didn't have money to have a Thanksgiving dinner. We didn't. And I remember I remember our friends you know we didn't ask for anything. We they just asked how, how how's it going? What are you guys doing for Thanksgiving? And I said, you know, we're just probably just going to hang out at the house. And, and they caught on what's going on. And the day before Thanksgiving, there was a box in our front door with a full meal for our family. And it was the sentiment of having somebody in your corner when, when you know, when you're, you're out trying to live for God and trying to do something for the Lord and, and, and life throws things at you that you don't know you're going to fight, you don't know you're going to face. And, and those friends changed our lives because they, they, they shared our burdens. And I don't know if they're ever going to watch this, but Reagan, Ryan, John, if, if you're watching, we love you so much. We're so grateful. I remember in 2019, you know, I was in a tough season, man. I was overworked and stressed out and out of shape, overcaffeinated, rethinking everything, including this church. I was in a season where I was in, in, in a lot of wrestling on the inside. It was tough personally, and it was tough financially. It was, you know, we're raising little kids. Some of you have little kids, you know how, how tough it is to even get here on a Sunday morning and 
both Alini and I have been doing this for nine years now, and and typically our Sunday looks like I get here early with the team, and my wife is at home getting three kids ready, now four kids ready, and she's never been late to a meeting. She's never been late to a service. Maybe one time, right, honey? I don't remember it, though, because love keeps no record of wrong. She's been a, she's been a, she's been a hero. Just, you know, with everything. And, and, but I remember that season was so tough. And I started grinding my teeth and clenching all the stress like my psoriasis was flaring up. And starting getting this, this huge pain on my jaw. I couldn't eat a bagel without like having pain on my, everything. I was having like four or five cups of coffee a day to keep going. And, and, and you know, I remember praying and being kind of angry. God, you sent me here to this godless land. People are not generous. They don't care about church. What am I doing here? <laughs> the view was a little obfuscated. <laughs> don't take it personally. It was nothing to do with you. I was like, God, why us? You know, why us? We... And I started getting vertigo. It was tough. I remember one Saturday I had a, a, this, this episode of vertigo. And I couldn't, I couldn't come to preach on Sunday. And that was so hard because it's running the church, planting this church, is this thing that we, we gave our lives for. And if I'm so debilitated that I can't even do that, Alini had to cover for me that Sunday. It's like, what, what, what's the guarantee that this is not going to happen every third Sunday? If, if this is a condition now. And so during that season, I was able to get away with some pastor friends and I just broke down I didn't even know I was at the verge of a breakdown I didn't even you know when you're in it and you think it's just life and you're blinded to the situation I broke down everybody with about 15 friends at this table out far away in a state far far away in the Midwest by myself. I wasn't a pastor there. I wasn't a husband. I wasn't a dad. It was just me and God and these guys who also do the same thing. And I broke down. I cried my eyes out. And it was there that God's presence restored me. Why? Because I had somebody to share my burdens. I had somebody I could talk to. I had somebody I could relate to. I had somebody I could connect to. People that I was doing life with, even though, you know, a couple of them are from this region, but people that I've known for a while that I'm able to trust. People. People. Friends. Neighbors. You know, Christ himself shared his burdens. There was a night when he knew his burden was too high to bear, too big to bear. And he went to his father and he said, Father, if, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. If it's possible, I don't, I, I don't want to bear this. I don't want to carry this. I don't want to do this, but your will be done. In that moment, he had his friends with him. That's why we know, because they were with him. They went with him to pray with him. They were with him to be with him, to share his burdens with him. When he was carrying his cross on the Via Dolorosa, Simon the Serene, 
a North African man, probably of Greek descent, was called to share the burden of carrying Jesus' cross. And he helped Jesus carry his cross. I think that there's a message there for all of us. That as we are bearing our cross in life, God is going to bring people alongside. And we got to be willing to say, hey, here's my burden. Will you come along with me? Will you share this with me? Because we are not meant to carry our burdens by ourselves. And my challenge to you today is let's be the kind of people, let's be the kind of village, let's be the kind of villager that not only is willing to carry somebody else's burdens, but that we're willing to lay down our pride and to trust God and our fellow believers, trust God and our fellow brothers and sisters and say, hey, this is my life. Let's walk through it together. I don't want to do this alone anymore. That we may be the kind of village that exemplifies that two are better than one. That we may be the kind of village that carries one another's burdens. And that we may be willing to belong to each other in such a way that we may have the confidence and the freedom to lay down our burdens. It takes a village, friends. And I believe this is the village God has called you to. I believe if you're here, God has called you to be part of this village. Do you receive it this morning? Amen. Thank you for listening today. If you have a prayer request, a question about faith, or would like to find out more information, visit us at connectcommunity.org. Don't forget to subscribe and share. See you next time.